0: Yo, yo, what's up? Welcome to episode 6 of Hot Up or Shut Up. My name is Sam Asbell. I'm joined by my uh, co-host who is currently dying because he has... Who knows what he has? Paul, what, what are you What are you even sick with these days? I think
1: bronchitis, uh, I believe. I believe. <coughs> I that's to. what that sounds like.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I'm just going to ask you to mute yourself every time you cough uh, for the viewers. Yeah, that's going to be the goal. Yeah, well, alright. So we've also... We're super lucky we have joining us today as a guest we have um paris kumar who runs debate drills and is also the coach of parker whitfield who just won the toc paris we're so lucky to have you thanks for coming on
2: thanks guys i'm excited to be here here.
0: yeah but um yeah so it's going to be a great show and uh yeah what's this oh no I believe that is and a breaking news. A news update. That is a breaking news update. Breaking news. I've just gotten in, I've just gotten a notification that the bid status of tournaments has been released. Um, the notable changes that I see is that Sunvite got moved down to a semis bid, which honestly, like about time, they can't conflict with Lex and expect to have a quarters bid. Blue Key moved up
1: really? to a quarters
0: bid. Yeah, dude, that's because they're they're spending a bunch of money on judges. They don't have good competition yet, but
1: okay, that makes sense.
0: That's pretty interesting. Uh, University of Kentucky has a finals bid that was added. Uh, they also have a semis Bra- bid. Grapevine became a quarters bid. Ooh! Wow, Grapevine became a quarters bid. That is that is interesting. Wow, so a big shakeup. No octus bids, lost bids. The octus bids stay the same, but big shakeups. Uh, definitely more to come on that. We'll see how that comes in the year. Uh, but yeah, that's just our little joke of a breaking news thing. But I guess let's get let's get right into it. Um, Pars. So uh, first of all, congratulations on Toc. This is, I mean, you guys killed it.
2: Yeah, congrats, dude. Um, uh,
0: I guess I guess what what did you guys do that you think is different from other debaters to kind of Reach the pinnacle, I guess. And like, what what kind of what kind of drills did you do? What did you do in order to get Parker to beat the best of the best?
2: Well, I think that the first thing that's always worth mentioning is it takes a lot of luck to win T.O.C. You have to have judging in the back of the room that you trust, and not just have some random policy crossover or some judge who hasn't judged since like the 1990s. Uh, on your panels, which happens too often in late out rounds of TLC. Um So we definitely got lucky. That was a big part of it. I think the second part is that We really focused on positional debating and just making sure we could execute strategies against each of the top 15, 20 debaters. And so we sat down and analyzed weaknesses, figured out the places where we thought they didn't want to have debates with us and brainstormed how we can get the debate to that layer and then just drilled it extensively. So we practiced, you know, the... 2R and, and the 1AR and the 2AR on a variety of different strategies, be it politics or the non consensual image distribution counterplan or the queer past K or the Hobbes NC, et cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, Amit Kukreja and Dino De La O definitely deserve a shout out because they helped Parker get good at the K and the Phil debate, respectively, because uh, I am just awful at those layers of, of
0: debate. That's awesome. Uh, so, what
2: well, well, kind of like, I guess, in terms of new
1: preparation was the process there? Like how much new stuff were you reading at TOC versus how much of it was just stuff you were rolling with All Topic?
2: I think we had a new politics dis that we drilled extensively. And we had a couple of new apps that we didn't end up breaking. We had a sexual assault app, which I think will be put up on the Circuit Debater wiki in the coming days. But, I mean, the formula for winning TSC is pretty tried and tested at this point. Like, having a couple of small apps you can break on Monday. Um, on the neg, having a couple of generics against small apps. Like, Mission San Jose broke new against us in quarters. And my understanding was that both Ollie and Rafi would have done that if we had negated in SEMS. Uh, and I think that... In terms of n- brand new prep, uh, we didn't have any like innovative strategies that completely rewrote the way the game will be played i think we just really focused on the 2 R on topicality the 2 R on politics the 2 R on the counter plan uh the 1ar covering t going for case and getting turns out on the nc or like um i guess one strategy we really executed in practice a lot was the cap good impact turn debate and we must have spent like five to ten hours drilling that and just going very in-depth into all of the different scenarios the 2&R could throw at us in terms of approaching the cap-bad-good debate. And that was uh, one strategy. And we got to sort of execute it in round one against Evan Engel, which was cool. Um, but, yeah.
0: yeah, That's sweet. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of preparation that goes into TOC or a lot of preparation that people think goes, in that end, goes into TOC is like, okay, we need to work on prepping. We need to uh, we need to do some like whatever generic theory drills, and we need to have practice rounds. But I haven't seen. I think it's very. I think it's a very um, like effective approach to kind of focus on certain speeches and just kind of locking them in and getting them to the point where you're almost robotic at it. Like I think that's the best. That's the best feeling when you see your kid do you know ten reads re- in a two nr R, where they're the fact where they they're just ready for anything. Any possible permutation of 1AR uh, strategies uh, that they can just give it to an R, like perfectly knowing what they can do.
2: Yeah, I agree. I was, um, you know, I've never been very card heavy focused. I don't like to cut cards for my kids. I don't like to tell them what to do. I don't like to give them stuff. I really believe a critical part of debate and making it more inclusive is coaches not doing stuff for their kids and instead encouraging their kids to research and do their own stuff. And so. All of the stuff that was in the Dropbox, I would say over 95% of it was cut by Jong-Hawk, Parker, Matt Chen, um, etc. There was a group effort, but I didn't do any of the card cutting. I mean, I just downloaded Verbatim the Friday of TOC and, like, barely know how to use Verbatim still. And so it was really, really awesome to know that I could tell Parker, like, hey, like, there are one of different 10 one we could give. I trust you to give every single one of them. And then I trust you to analyze what the 2 R will do and make the right decision time trade-off wise and judge in the back of the room wise. Um, and so, yeah, I agree. I think we focused heavily on drills and on executing strategies that we knew would be prevalent. And we weren't as prep focused. I don't think cards win debates. I think execution and
0: strategy wins debates. Sweet. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think I found um, on balance, uh, my the kids that I coach that um, produce their own prep are much more successful than the kids that, you know, kind of uh, want us to write the prep or stuff like that. Just because uh, I feel like if you write your own prep, you, you know the arguments so well. If you read the literature, you understand the arguments. If you cut the cards, you understand kind of where that stuff's coming from. And I just think that's such an underrated uh, part of it is um, forcing the debaters to kind of uh, do their own prep with the guidance uh, that I think people, I think that's a little bit an under, underrated part of uh, kind of coaching is to kind of let the debater cut their evidence and, and cut their cases and then you, and you give them guidance, obviously, but uh, it makes them their project.
1: Yeah, I agree. yeah. Yeah. And beyond from like a content perspective, I think it also helps... Like, you know, it helps them know the literature base, but it also helps them know how the pieces fit together. Like, what, what, which which card is doing what work for them in a, any particular case. And I think it also helps, like, writing an app helps so much with strategy. Like, if you never write an app in your life, you will not know what, how, like, app strategy works. Like,
2: Yeah, I agree. Do people really not write apps?
1: Some I mean, people, I
0: mean... I mean, so like, we're not here to call out people, right? But we're not we're not here to call out people. We're not here to call sure, people out. Sure. But like, but like, <laughs> I've gotten I've gotten I've gotten numerous requests of coaching, and the kids are just like, I'm gonna need you to write me an aff and a nag on every topic. I'm like, okay, that's not how I work. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm more than willing to do some prep, but I've just I mean, that just approach is already the wrong approach to um, getting better. You know, getting good as a good debater. Like, coaches aren't there really to be just your workhorse. Um, I think that's not a good kind of relationship between a coach and a, and a student. I think coaches are there to um, drill with you, kind of guide you, but I think prep is an important thing that kids have to do. I don't know. That's yeah, just I agree. Just
2: like picking ba- piggybacking off of that, I think that oftentimes coaches get lazy and just cut the cards for their kids and they forget how to do the drills. They can't execute the speeches anymore. And so, like, Parker and I would debate each other all the time on theory and UTIL, and I'm still reasonably fast enough that I can give a speech and have it sound at least somewhat representative of what we we can expect to hit in the top 15, 20. And I think that that's a skill coaches don't emphasize enough in coaching. And people don't also... I I noticed a lot of people in this community are, like, very dogmatic about what they think is good debate and what they think is good strategy. And one of our like variables that we always juggle when we're talking about strategy is just not being dogmatic, going for anything, um, if it's strategic in that given time and place. And so I think those two things really helped us at TOC, because we were—I I do think we were the most drilled team at TOC, and we were the most ready to execute.
0: Um. No, I mean I agree. I mean Bob Bob Overing just posted like his little thing. That he does the ten things I like, and he and he posted that. Uh, Parker just seemed seemed to, like you could you could tell that Parker was ready. You could tell that he had practiced. It was evident based on how perfectly his execution was, um, and it's one of those things where it's it's it, like people say, "Oh, how can you tell?" But it's one of those things where you just kind of know it when you see it. And You can tell that like man, this dude is was prepared for each and every one of these situations that he was put in.
2: Yeah, we we really yeah, we, we really hustled
0: yeah it was uh, uh it was so, an intense two months yeah wait so let me ask you more on the like the micro level so how often did you guys drill
2: i think we drilled every day for the month leading up to TSC. we might have missed a day or two he had to go to camp the, uh, the days we missed i was not happy about uh, he drilled i don't think he missed a day for the last Two months of the season from March 1st until TOC, he drilled every day.
0: Wow. That's, I mean, yeah. That's seriously That's
1: impressive. impressive.
0: Yeah. I mean, and people, people, were, people were saying, oh, like, Nina had, Nina had so much regular season success. I mean, and she obviously did. She was such an incredible debater and one of my favorites to watch. Um, and people were almost a little bit surprised that Parker won. And I was, I was telling people, I was like, dude, you guys should watch his practice rounds versus Nina that were posted. You guys should watch uh, the drills that were posted online. You could tell that he was, he was competitive and very close of not winning all those rounds. Uh, so, I mean, I personally wasn't, wasn't really surprised when he, when he took it home. Um, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, go, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead, Sam. I was just gonna say that I think it, it's really, it's really good to see because it's really, a, it it really kind of can motivate kids, and it's, it's really good for kids to see this that uh, it really a, thing anything can change between Berkeley and TOC, Berkeley and Harvard weekend at TOC.
2: Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, we lost in triples of Harvard to Nirmal and both Parker and I were very upset. Uh, because our, our whole plan the whole year, because I went to his house for two weeks over the summer in Portland, and our, our goal the whole year was to win everything. We're just, like, incredibly competitive, and obviously we did not win a single thing. And so that was a very disappointing end to the regular season. And so, you know, I sat down with him, and I was like, look, man, if you're serious about this, you gotta you got to make the adjustments and work harder. And he did it. He won Harrison, and he won TSC. So hard work did pay off
0: yeah that's awesome
2: when you decide to
1: say drill a particular speech so like the 2a are on the cap good debate um like what's the micro level process there how do you isolate the different looks that
2: you could get in the 2n and i guess yeah what what exactly is that micro level process So one look that we got on the cap-good-bad debate is sort of the epistemic indicts of the 1AR evidence. So, for instance, Harvard-Westlake and finals of Stanford, we went for cap-good, and Zhang decided to go for theory in the 2AR instead of cap-good, which uh, I still disagree with as a strategic decision. but we had their speech talk, and me, Jong, Matt Chen, Parker, uh, we all sat down and drilled that speech doc. And so we approached their specific set of arguments. So that's like one way you could approach Cap Good Bad. Another way you could approach Cap Good Bad is just as a pure impact-weighing debate that people just straight up say, like, the badness that capitalism causes is, is, bad, is worse than the goodness that it'll cause. And so that just becomes a magnitude times probability-weighing debate um, and not as much of a question of evidence cohesion. Um, so those are like two different looks you could get in the 2 R, um, And similarly on every single sub-issue in debate, be it topicality or... I think actually topicality is a good example. So for instance, in the 2 R on topicality you can get three different looks. One is a semantics-based look. Um, so the 1AR goes heavy for the F is semantically correct. Um, and that means it is reasonable. And deserving to be within the uh, list of AFs that are debated on the topic. Second is a pragmatic approach uh, where they go heavy for an education based defense of plan focus. And third is a pragmatic approach where they go heavy for a fairness based defense of plan focus. And so just like really extensively drilling all three of them, making sure they're super comfortable going for any of those three speeches in the round and being able to analyze it based off like, okay, the one AR is 90 seconds on T We're split up as 40 seconds on semantics, 30 seconds on education, 20 seconds on fairness. Obviously, I should go for fairness and just crush them on it because they have 20 seconds of arguments and I have six minutes to build on it. Um, so that's a great example of how you can approach a speech from a bunch of different angles.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so, so have you, so here's a question. Have you found ever that like, uh, people have done something else like, like, an, uh, that an app has done something else that you have not planned for on the T debate? Like, especially on like, 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 against what you just said, is there any way that an app can do anything that's not one of those three options?
2: Oh absolutely. oh, absolutely! Of course. Of course. Uh, debate is infinitely open-ended. That's one of the awesome things about debate. You can impact, turn T. You can go for reasonability. You can go for drop the argument, um, et, cetera, et cetera, And uh, we wanted to. We wanted to, and I think we did, drill all of those strategies extensively. Um, and that was just an example off the top of my head of like three predominant yeah. ones that came to my head. Um, but what's your, you, know, what's your, you, know, you know, go ahead. Sorry.
0: What's your What's your best advice for people when they are when someone does a strategy that they're completely not prepped on like the one AR does some just some kind of curveball, um, what or, or like just like some kind of or like they break a new app that's, that you just don't know how to respond to. What's What do you think your best advice for kids is in that regard?
2: Well, I think that part of what makes what separates good debaters from great debaters is ability to think critically on your feet. And so, you know, you can't rely on your coaches or your teammates making sure you're always prepped and drilled on a speech. You have to be able to execute it by yourself um, if you're put in that position in the round. And so... I think a lot of it is like focusing on building a solid base for argumentation. Like I think all debate at the end of the day boils down to like a core toolbox of arguments that you make. Like For instance, if you're attacking a warrant, you can ap- attack it from the level of the link, uh, from the level of the impact, and when you attack it at the level of the link, you can go for like no links, link defense, non-uniques, um, alt causes, alt solvency, etc. And so getting them comfortable with that logic and then being able to apply it to different types of debates, like T-debates, K-debates, uh, policy debates, etc., are is – I think the end goal of coaching is to create a kid who ideally would not need you as a coach on site. They could just go and do – execute the strategy, which I think that like one of the only debaters I've ever seen like that is Jack Wareham. Yeah. That was really interesting. Yeah,
0: um, I agree. Yeah, Jack didn't even have Jack didn't even have a coach his senior year. I'm pretty sure. Like he just kind of, he just kind of did his own thing, which is pretty sweet.
1: I want to pivot a little bit for a second um, to like, I guess, at tournament process. So we've talked a lot about the lead up to the TOC. Uh Do you think you do any like anything anything particularly unique at a tournament? Uh, what's the sort of split between uh, skills based preparation at a tournament versus content based preparation at a tournament?
2: Um, What does the war room look like, essentially? I think our war room is very focused on strategy. So, like, if we do X, they'll do Y. We should Z, Z. Who the judge is in the back of the room. Um, I think one thing that differentiates how we approach on-site versus other squads is we're doing a lot of drills on-site itself. So if we mess up in a speech, we'll go outside and drill it between the time the 2AR ends and the RFD ends or is given, so I remember like vividly at the Harvard-Westlake round robin, Parker and I doing drills in between his rounds, or like even after the 2AR ended before the RFD and people just looking at us like, you guys are being overboard, this is ridiculous like, what are you doing, and uh, you know, just neither of us cared, we were there to win, that was the only reason we went to that tournament, and Why we went to tournaments in general, and so I think like very drill focused on site and focusing on like improving from the round before and the thirty minutes before a debate, like before, uh, for instance, semis of uh, TOC against Oliver, we had read a very similar aff against him in a practice round and he replicated a very similar strategy and so we practiced that one ar on t plus getting out a theory shell and he had given that one ar that he gave in real time literally 15 minutes before the debate and i got to give him adjustments like yo five more seconds here five less seconds there the warrant for this was not coherently explained you need to add this argument in here etc so i guess it's content based in the sense that Um, I tell him when I think an argument is missing or can be adjusted or framed differently, but it's very much so still just strategy focused.
0: Do you guys, do you guys ever break new arguments that you haven't drilled before at tournaments? Like you see, like, you're like, Oh, this guy broke this. Like X argument would be perfect against that. Like we haven't really drilled it, but I think it would be good. Do you guys ever do that? Or you mostly kind of stick your guns?
2: I think it depends on the kid. Some kids are better at it than others. I was hesitant to do that with Parker, but I'm way less hesitant to do that with like Matt Chen, for instance, Uh, because he just picks up on those things and has like a much more higher comfort level naturally with explaining new arguments. Um, Or like Jong Hawk was a good example of a debater you could sort of just hand something to and be like, we should execute this and he like reads it and like picks up on it as better so I think that's yeah. really uh, debater specific
0: yeah the reason I the reason I say that is because I remember I was kind of walking in your guys war room at the Glenbrooks and I remember um, Kath was hitting um, Lucas Clark and you guys had randomly prepped a plan flaw argument and uh, it was just really interesting kind of watching watching you guys just drill that plan flaw argument like a couple minutes before the round just kind of locking in a uh, little enough and I guess that's what she ended up winning on so that's that was super cool.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, those types of things, you know, are the small joys of being able to coach, like of planning out a strategy like I think that this debater has a weakness of X and if we place an argument at this particular place in the flow, they may potentially miss it or just not handle it well or it might layer yeah. them too much. Um and that I think is sort of the strategy mapping that not enough people are having conversations about and it's too much content focused and not enough reactionary to like the arguments being read and to the end goal being getting a better time trade off on the issue that wins the debate.
1: I think that brings up an interesting uh, point about like scouting um, like the idea of what scouting is, cause I, I've noticed like a lot of people tend to think of scouting purely as a, a sort of content based thing where we're looking to see what, what things this person is reading. Uh, they'll maybe dip after the 1A and 2, uh, 1AC and the one C are done, um, but I guess like and, and so my understanding is, seems to be that I mean you you guys are a lot more focused on really understanding opponents from a well strengths and weaknesses perspective, and I guess how how do you go about collecting that data on someone like do you just like scour the internet for rounds on them? Uh, how much of that? Yeah, I guess what's the process there looking like?
2: That's a great question. Um... I usually, when I'm scouting, like, I'll give you an example. In Octos of TOC, I hadn't seen uh, the person from Cedar Park, Morgan, debate ever. And so I wasn't really interested in the 1N. I was more interested in her rebuttal. And so I was looking at how tech she was. Uh, So tech is both word efficiency and speed. Um, And then what her quality of explanation was on each layer. And... Third is what her time trade off decisions were. So if she like was very intentional in her decision making. And so that's something that, you know, if I had just asked somebody what is she reading, I would have had no idea about. And that's where watching a debater in real time or catching their rebuttals, we like to scout with the rebuttals, not the constructives, Um, becomes a lot easier for us in terms of our strategy mapping Um, because it lets us make decisions like, oh, like, will they be able to cover? Or, oh, like, will they over-allocate on this issue because that's their historical tendency is to over-allocate on X and that lets us exploit Y. Um, And so thinking about it very much so as a a chess game, Uh, And so the chess game relies on what pieces they're likely to move and in what order they move them and how effectively they just go about that whole process. And so that's a small look into it.
0: I think that's, I think, like, especially, like, 2NRs, like, seeing what, like, layered 1NC strats, like, that people read, and just, like, seeing what they are prone to collapse to, seeing how much time, how much ink you have to put on something for them to not go for it. Um, I think all of that is super important to gauge, you know, okay? Like I don't want to spend too much time responding to X argument and what I are, but I want to spend enough time to the fact, to the point where I don't want them going for it or like something like that. And I think yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it that. Um, it's kind of especially now with disclosure. Everyone discloses, everyone pretty much knows everybody's Yeah. Like it's 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 a little bit less interesting to flow the one end now when you kind of just I mean what your flow i'm so su- i'll be surprised your flow is better than their disclosure yeah it definitely is more more important to see unless you're a flowing guru um but uh yeah i'd be i'd be it's definitely more interesting of the question to kind of see what the two and are and the kind of one A R and two A R do
2: yeah and i mean like yeah, i think that this is something that a lot of people don't take seriously enough like for instance in finals um we had executed that NC strategy versus Nina two times before the tournament, in the week or two before the tournament. Like the same exact strategy, a TJF plus NC plus NCID. Were those practice rounds? Yeah, with uh, Catherine and with Parker. Uh, and so we sort of had an understanding of what the... 1AR wanted to go for or was most likely to go for um, and I think by far Nina's best layer was theory and so the first 30 seconds of the one end was a theory hedge which made it so that if she wanted to go for theory, the investment she has to make in the 1AR on that debate is way higher now because she has to answer the RVI stuff and has to answer our reasonability um, to be able to get any meaningful access to her show, which means that even if the show was only 30 to 45 seconds all of a sudden, a 30-second 1N investment added on an additional 30 to 45-second 1AR investment, which means she's lost upwards of 30% of her speech getting out and out that we feel very comfortable just destroying in the 2NR. And that really sh- undercuts her ability to go for substance in the 1AR because now she's inevitably going to leave herself short on either the framework debate or the TJFs or the CP turns the AF. Um and so I think that that decision really moved her away from 1AR theory, um, and that's like those are like small examples of decisions that people can't make if they don't have all of the data points, and they can't collect the data points if they're not looking for them.
0: Yeah, and um, I think an interesting kind of point about that is almost almost a counter, like because uh, I was sitting next to you while you know was giving her 1AR and. She she adjusted. She made an adjustment based on those practice rounds, right? She she added the T J F, right? If I'm not mistaken, yeah. into the F. Um, totally. So I guess, uh, what? I mean, I guess I don't know where this question is going, but I I guess I just wanted to point out that it's interesting that uh, that she she did that and that you guys were still kind of able to overcome that.
2: In the yeah. Water. Well, I mean, yeah, I. I mean, the prediction I had, I the adjustment I had predicted before the round was that instead of reading multiple shells, she would only read one. Um, I did not expect her to not read any shells. Period. But like, I'm super excited that we got to hire her for our. Uh, for our Dropbox next year because her understanding of strategy like her and i speak the same language in terms of how to make adjustments what adjustments we should be making and you know she she's a strategician she's a chess player and she thinks about it very deeply and so in those situations you have to just trust the the just foundation you've built and parker made like excellent strategic decisions in the two and r i thought his time allocation was on point uh and so it was just – and you don't win those rounds roboting somebody to, like, tell them exactly what to say, how to say it, where to say it. you got to trust them to do their own thing. And so it worked out. It
0: worked out. Do you ever freak out a little bit when they do something different when you're watching? No, not
2: at all. I don't freak out. I just uh, – I, I, hmm, I'm trying to think of have I ever gotten really mad at Parker for executing something completely different. <laughs> Not really. I think that um, I'm curious more than anything why they end up choosing to do what they do. Um, But yeah, I I think I'm more nervous just about like, are we going to win or lose? And at that point, like, you know, I've lost control over the debate. And so. Yeah, I mean, I think
0: personally something that separates people from being literally the best of the best and people just being very good debaters is kind of. I mean, and obviously this comes with the caveat that um, you should be flexible in case something drastically changes. But w- this, what I call, what I tell my kids, and I, I coached a young girl, um, uh, a sophomore to TOC this year. And w- in the beginning of the year, we struggled with some of the things like what I call going rogue, which was, which was what I called. Uh, I would, I would give certain strategic advice, uh, and there would the, the, one and two would make some sort of crazy pivot based on something that was said in cross-ex. Or something like that, and kind of not being insured themselves, and then there would be catastrophic consequences. What well, catastrophic? I'm saying they would just lose. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's just I think I think that's always that's also just an interesting kind of line to walk. Uh, kind of line to walk, and I think that's what the best debaters do. It's kind of sticking to your guns and executing your strategy versus when you kind of have to know. Okay, like I have to audible. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Something interesting that you said there, Parse, was. Uh, that you're more curious about why they made that decision. I think that's a really interesting comment because I think a lot of the times we don't really think about like understanding our own students better uh, and opportunities to like almost like scout our own kids or scout their you know a little bit like take a peek inside their own minds and their decision making processes. Um, and you in particular, I think, have always struck me as a coach who's really in tune with the sort of mental processes of, of, you know, what kinds of,
2: like, thinkers your your kids are? Uh, i try to be, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that debate at its highest level is very difficult. And you're balancing a ton of variables at once. You're balancing pressure, sleep deprivation, hunger, uh, having to think at a very quick pace. And you have tendencies that start popping up when you're in those situations repeatedly. And so like one of Parker's tendencies was going for too much theory and thinking that just being very technically focused and thinking like, if I won this argument on the line by line, obviously I should win the round and not thinking about the more ethos presentation aesthetics of the debate and thinking about himself as a storyteller and not just as a pure gamer who's like playing a chess match. And, That was something that we worked on literally constantly, and that was a recurring conversation even on Monday at TOC, like, yo, dude, I need you to go for the strategically less decision in these debates on a time trade-off perspective if the judging pool calls for it, Uh, and sometimes that's just what we have to do, and I think he finally started understanding that during the second semester. Um, and, but you know, that is, it's a constant give and take. And it's something that you, you, it's in your best interest as a coach. If you're interested in like maximizing every last ounce of potential from your kid to understand who your kid is, cause then that helps you convey information to them in a more effective manner pre round.
0: I think the storytelling point is a really, really good point because I think I remember when I was a debater and I used to lose rounds that I thought were BS. And I used to walk out of the rounds, and I used to complain to my coaches and say, oh, like it was a terrible decision, blah, blah, blah. But then when I became a judge and I became a coach, I, I, I kind of had this comp- like almost epiphany that it's like, that story- if you cannot explain to your judge why you voted, because 99% of the time, your judges are smart people. Your judges are people you know that have done debate, ideally, um, I mean, I'm talking about on balance, like your ones or whatever, people that you're prepping. Um, I mean, there are people that you should be able to communicate to. And I think that that's, that that's something that people take for granted is that if you do not communicate to them away to the ballot, that's, kind of, that's on you as a debater, not necessarily on the judge. I think that's a, I think that's a, a very important thing to teach, um, which is kind of, yeah, how do, I, how do I get past this just chess game thing? And how do I, how do I incorporate kind of those kind of intangibles to to my speeches.
2: Yeah, I agree. And it's something that, you know, at a certain level as a coach, you just can't control everything. And either a kid is willing to grind and work and learn or they're not. And you can only help them as much as they're wanting to be helped. Um but I do think that's an important part of it.
0: Yeah. Um So I guess I want to pivot a little bit more also just to talk about these practice rounds that you guys had before TOC. So how many, how many did you guys have and what kind of things did you look to do after them? And how did you decide who to have them against?
2: I Facebook messaged the 15 or so kids I was most worried about pre-TOC. Um, and asked them if they wanted to have rounds. I would say about six or seven of them were down. Um, and then I tried to set up as many of them as I possibly could. It was honestly a pain in the butt, um, because I was like, Parker, you should be doing this. Why am I doing this for you? Um, but we ended up getting like five rounds in with Rafi, three rounds in with Nina, a couple of rounds in with Zoe and Jillian, um, couple of rounds in with Trent Gilbert, um, just kids we hadn't maybe debated during the year and had no sense of in terms of how they like to debate, where they're at strategically, what decisions they make, etc. Because we felt very comfortable with the West Coast crew, like the Harvard-Westlake people and uh, Peninsula and Alexao and the Limbrook kids. Because um, just we'd been around them more and like Shruti from Greenville. Um, and so we just didn't have as much exposure to the Northeast. And we got, like, a couple of rounds in with Oliver, et cetera.
0: Sweet. Um, um, wait. wait. <laughs> while, while, Paul, while Paul's figuring out what he's going to say next. No.
1: I just thought Paris just cut off. Um, cut off. I think oh. there's something wrong with my audio. It's okay. We can, <laughs> we can probably edit this part out. If not, uh, <laughs> that's just going to be kind of awkward. Anyways, whatever. I wanted to talk a little bit. Anyway. Our, our audio technician is, is very upset with us right now. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you utilized. Because uh, I think this TOC, you had a kind of an abundance of time on Sunday. Uh, there was a very early um, like let out time. Um, and you kind of have like five, over five hours to work on Sunday. And I'm just kind of curious how you used that time. What was
2: that like? So I was very lucky to have John Scoggin with me all weekend, helping us cut cards and John Hawk and Catherine graciously agreed to, uh, cut cards for us too. And Amit was also cutting cards over the, uh internet he was sitting in uh, new jersey he was a critical part of our operation this weekend and honestly uh all year and i the first thing i did was well i actually i was like really upset for the first hour after doubles because they weren't giving me a bracket and i was like how the hell am i supposed to coach if i don't know who the f- who were debating um, what, what was
0: their what was their reasoning behind not giving you a bracket
2: uh, I mean, they just—I have no idea, dude. It, they just took like an hour and a half like to release the bracket, and I was just like banging my head against the wall, like there is no yeah. possible way. I'm prepping 15 people out. I need to know who we're debating and in what order we're gonna get them. Um, so we found out the order was TJ Foley, then the winner of Lavania Morgan, and then the sort of quarter, the the sort of crew of like hmm. Kyle, Yuan, Rafi, Oliver, and Shruthi. Um, and so that sort of oriented the way we were going to prep because both Shruthi and Rafi were reading whole res afs, Um And we wanted to make sure our one end against the whole res af was perfect. We were going to read politics of condo pick and then case answers with a theory hedge. Um, and I think against uh, TJ, we were just going to end up having a framework debate. And yeah, have, like, I touched
0: that. You guys, yeah, you guys just – it was just NCAC was the strategy
2: yeah, and that's what we yeah. sort, of sort of predicted, right, and we just, we wanted to flip off in that debate, so I think the first, the first 30 minutes was just me sort of thinking about, like, what debates we're most likely to have, what debates they are going to want to execute tomorrow, uh, etc., and... Uh, ultimately, after we did that, I gave assignments. So I had I split up four people into different uh, topic areas. Like Scoggin took the lead on the process pick. Um, Amit took the lead on Grant Brown, uh, which was just a headache for us all weekend because we honestly had no idea how Parker was going to debate him other than topicality. Um, and I think that. Uh, Catherine and John Hawk took the lead on solvency press against the whole Rizaf. Um And then Parker and I did four hours of nonstop drills. And we worked on every speech we ended up giving on the next day, which worked out perfectly for us.
0: That's awesome. Cool. So yeah. So I mean, we've talked about a bunch about TOC. Um, I kind of want to pivot again. Uh, to kind of talking about the summer, um, and I know you guys have a lot at Debate And if anyone doesn't know, Parse is the founder of Debatrals.com, which is a great website, which he also runs a, a team, uh, hmm. drills, but also has some great um resources. So, I guess right, my question is, um, in the summer, uh, aside, you I know, mean, a lot of debaters like to go to debate camp, and aside from debate camp, when they're not at debate camp. Um, what, should, what should they do? How should they prepare for the next season? And, and kind of talk about the resources that are available.
2: Uh, I mean, I'm biased, but it's not called debate drills for no reason, right? Like, I think you should be doing drills. <laughs> uh, I think the best drills you could do right now are give the 1AR, 2 r, and 2AR from rounds online. Um, you'll actually find a lot of videos on our YouTube channel that are kids in the past giving those speeches like – Parker, for instance, giving the two and R from quarters of twenty fifteen TOC between or twenty sixteen TOC between Jack Wareham and Cameron Cohen. Um, or giving the two and R from Octos of that twenty sixteen TOC between Ochell Ochell and I think it was Felix. Um, and the two and R from Chavane versus Varad, etc. And so like That is, my, in my opinion, the best way to get better at debate is just give those speeches. And if you can give them at the same speed, tech, efficiency, and argument explanation that those debaters are giving it at, then not only does it give you the confidence to execute it in real time, but you're also building up the repetition of being able to execute very high-level strategies, which should, in theory, make it very easy for you to do it in real time. So, so what about, are you just, ta- at this level, or are you just talking about, like, mimicry? Like, if I'm,
1: you know, Joe Schmo debater, like, maybe I'm going to my, like, second year, or even first year of varsity, um, and I'm seeing all these, like, amazing TOC-level debaters, uh, are, am I just trying to mimic the 2N, or am I trying yeah, give to the build exact- off it?
2: Great question. I think you give the exact same speech as it was given until you can give it perfectly. Um, and once you can give it perfectly, you'll start seeing places you can make adjustments. And so the best example I have for you of the person who did this, who will never leave my mind, is uh, Brennan Caruthers. He debated, I think, uh, Thirteen. Brennan came to me the summer before his senior year, and he had Uh, a huge speech impediment he just had a huge issue with stuttering Um, and I sat down with him and I was like look I want you to give this speech a hundred times between now and tomorrow and if you do it you will know that you did it and I will too because it will sound completely different and I think he gave that speech like literally for four hours in a row nonstop, and he sounded perfect the next day And we just did that over and over and over and over and over again for like 30 different speeches. And by the end of it, he was ready to go. And he was comfortable going fast. He was comfortable executing high-level speeches. He had confidence in himself. He knew he could do it. And he had repetition. And so a lot of the debate jargon and speeches were memorized for him. He knew how to give the 1AR uh, going for a certain strategy because he'd given it like literally 50 times at home. Um, And so I think that a lot of debaters talk about getting better and they don't do the hard work it takes to get better. And if you're serious about getting better, do drills.
0: So, so okay, so here's here's a question. So so I guess uh, a debater has to have some sort of uh, baseline knowledge of, like, framework theory, you know, detail, yada, yada, yada. In order to give those high-end speeches, what would you suggest for debaters that are just kind of trying to start out? What kind of resources are there available? And kind of, yeah, what would you suggest for them, for the debaters that kind of uh, – That's a
2: great question. Um, I think that there are a few different articles available. So for instance, there's Jackson's article, which I think is fantastic. Um, I have a six-part lecture on theory uh, that is up on my YouTube channel that you can watch. We're trying to get up an intro to K, intro to framework, um, intro to util lecture series as well, intro to case writing. Um, I think we have intro to case writing up. I think that if you really scour our YouTube channel, and you'll find a lot of these videos that'll teach you the basic jargon wise. Um, so, the other major resource I highly recommend you use is Circuit Debater um, and valuecriterion.com. I think Value Criterion has like 500 free frameworks up, and Circuit Debater has like God knows how many cases up that are all free. Um, and just read, take in literature, take in the way people write, words they use. And if you're going to camp, create a list of terms you don't understand, words that were used, and, and the whole sentences in which they were used in, and then find somebody, sit down with them, and just like ask them to explain all of it to you.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's really good advice, and I think that um, I think that also there's there becomes an issue of debaters kind of don't even know what they need to know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but they they kind of, they know so little that they're not even sure what they need to learn. Like for, uh, well, yeah, uh, and I think that going, like checking out what other debaters are reading, going on, you know, Pars's YouTube channel where he kind of gives in-depth analysis of things kind of helps you break that barrier of uh, coming from knowing so little that you don't even, not even know what you need to know to kind of understanding what exists uh, and what you can get better at.
1: You're, you're sounding like Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld. Unknown unknowns.
0: <laughs> Call me a young Rumsfeld. <laughs> <laughs> um. But uh, yeah, so so I guess here's another question, um, and this is this is kind of not really related to uh, to um, I guess. And helping debaters get better, but this is just this is just a random question. What um, what what style of debate is your favorite? Like, what what kind of what type of round is your favorite to watch, to judge, and to debate against?
2: What I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. What was it? Yeah. So
0: what what type of I guess like round do you want to see two debaters having in front of you? What type of round do you want to see your kids executing? Uh, yeah, I guess those two. Uh,
2: as a judge. I honestly don't really care. I just don't think I'm qualified to judge like hardcore performance or K-debates and super uh, just in-depth meta-ethics debates. And those debates end up giving me headaches. Uh, And I feel really bad because I'm voting somebody down and they get upset with me afterwards. And I'm like, I wrote a paradigm for a reason. Um, So I guess that as a judge, I really enjoy watching really smart small-scale util debates, uh, so like case debates over solvency um, that are really well executed. Um, but usually if I'm judging, I'm like not a happy camper because my kids are debating, and I would way rather be watching their rounds and giving them adjustments that we could make immediately afterwards. Um, so that's in terms of judging. In terms of my kids debating, um, I just love small-scale util debate. I love methodological presses. I think that evidence comparison is a lost art, and I think that people should have their methodologies. They should know the sample size, scope, time frame, variables controlled for author qualifications of all of their empirical claims. And I think that I very uh, rarely see good solvency case debates that are well done on a util level. And so those would be my favorite debates to watch my kids execute.
0: It's funny, I don't think, I don't. I literally don't remember the last time I've judged, maybe this is just indicative of who preps me, uh, but I don't remember the last time I've judged an evidence comparison debate. Like, yeah,
1: same. <laughs> it's, it's,
0: it really it really is a lost art, like you said. Um, I'm sure it's it happens more on the West Coast.
1: Yeah, it's true. But it's also I, a function of the region we intend to judge in. Yeah. Throwing some shade but, at the um, Northeast right now, y'all better read up. Better read up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, y'all better read up when your author calls. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Th- Pars, thanks so much for um, coming out and talking to us on the podcast. Really appreciate you coming on.
1: Um, no problem, yeah. it was my pleasure, guys. Yeah, you, you're brilliant.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. For everyone that uh, still doesn't know, make sure to check out Parse's uh, website, com. It's got a lot of incredible resources for debaters uh and also just uh nsd plug nsd still open for registration uh check out the website national symposium for debate and check out uh which camps are open for um and yeah hope to see you there paris thanks so much for coming on again and yeah peace out everybody take care guys
2: take care